Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. The kickoff meeting will be held on Thursday, May 20th. Learn more at PALTC.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. And now here's your host for Caring on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Caring on the Go. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series spotlights articles and stories from the AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine's news magazine, Caring for the Ages. We welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, and special guest, Travis Neal, to discuss some key articles from the May 2021 issue, including a focus on the younger adult in long-term care and a new innovative way to approach changes in a patient's potential medical plan of care. Dr. Gaelic is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice with Shepherd Pratt Health System. She is a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Travis Neal is a physician assistant who has worked in the post-acute setting for 10 years. He has a passion for geriatrics, is an assistant medical director at a number of facilities, an educator, and an associate professor at the Physician Assistant Program at the University of Colorado. Dr. Gaelic, welcome back. And Mr. Neal, welcome to Caring on the Go. Thanks so much, Wayne. Dr. Gaelic, as always, your Caring Collaborative editorial speaks of the passion in caring for the younger adult in post-acute and long-term care. You chose to make a special section in the May 2021 issue of Caring dedicated to the care of the younger adult. What inspired you to talk about this small but special, really unique population in long-term care? You know, you talk about challenges, what matters to the younger adult, and building trust and finding meaning. Take us through your editorial, please. Sure, Wayne. So um, the things that really inspired this special section on the younger adult um, was from the readership. Um, And it was an area that people felt that they needed more information about. And when you look at the literature, actually, like I tried to do, um, the research literature is is lacking. Uh, Several years ago, um, Dr. Farini, uh, Rebecca Farini, helped to develop with her colleagues um, a toolkit that addresses caring for the younger adult in the long-term care setting. Um, And it continues to be available. Um, It's based on um, consensus in terms of best practices. And uh, so we're hoping that, uh, so if you're interested in learning more about the care of younger residents in long-term care, um, you might want to check out that wonderful toolkit that um, is still available 
from Dr. Farini and uh, her, her group. Mm. Mm-hmm. So in terms of my um, editorial, uh, it focuses really kind of telling two stories about some of um, the younger uh, adults that I've had the opportunity to work with in post-acute and long-term care. Uh, and I think the things that challenged me and challenged the staff is that um, we have to find a different way of working with this population. Um, because for them, being in long-term care is what we call a non-normative experience. Mm. It's not something that a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old anticipates as being part of their life. And, you know, there's grief associated with that and a significant adjustment. And long-term care facilities, both physically as well as their social programming, are really set up to care for older adults. But we're seeing more and more younger people um, coming into some facilities and want to be able to uh, really provide uh, good care for them. And so uh, some of the challenges um, include uh, that they may not be as physically, um, in some instances, disabled as some of the older adults. So they may have more behavioral health or uh, serious mental illness. In other cases, they may have kind of dramatic um, physical uh, disability, but cognitively, you know, may be intact. So it's it's a um, heterogeneous group. There's not one way of working with the population, but some things that are important to younger adults in post-acute and long-term care settings are um, having opportunities for recreational activities that are age appropriate and meaningful, um, having visitors, Um, spending time out of the facility when that's feasible, and having um, engaging relationships with staff. Because in many instances, you know, the staff um, really do become um, part of uh, the resident's extended family in a way. And one of the cases I thought really highlights the importance of um, nursing assistants and other direct care providers it, the story was a, a 48-year-old man who had previously worked as a personal trainer. He was involved in a major motor vehicle accident and really um, struggled with his rehabilitation. Um, the thing that he enjoyed most was physical therapy, but in, when engaging with the nurses and the nursing assistants, um, you know, he didn't really... Um, want to to do the things that they wanted him to do and wanted to kind of be left alone. But through um, persistence with this one particular nursing assistant who who worked um, to build mutual trust with him and getting him involved in things, um, he liked getting him to teach her how to do exercises, um, she was able to really build a good relationship and his rehab was able to extend uh, during the time that um, you know, he was um, not engaged with the rehab team. He was eventually able to go to a residential group home. And um, that's another thing that we mm-hmm. want to think about. Um, for some of these younger uh, individuals, they may not be with us in long-term care um, forever, but it may be a short stay and thinking about how we can help them to successfully move on. You know, I, I love that. And it also makes me think that that these younger individuals, even if they aren't in long-term care, it would be uh, uh, to our, 
our advantage in under in understanding and appreciating their needs because um, they're going to grow older and they may require long term care at some point. So um, I think the benefit of of this uh, this special section is to kind of wipe away the myopia of thinking that we only deal with older adults, that there's a whole other population that is going to um, possibly become more prevalent uh, in our worlds uh, very soon. Huh? Yeah. Actually, we find that uh, nationally, about 15% of the post-acute and long-term care patient population is under the age of 65. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if the post-acute long-term care population is in the millions, then we know that's a very a very significant number. No, wonderful. Um, Dr. Gaithak, I want to get to uh, one of our spotlighted articles that falls under this uh, special section of the Younger Adult and Post-Acute Long-Term Care. It's by Christine Kilgore, um, one of your staff writers, who uh, entitles her piece, Trust, Consistency, Engagement meeting the complex needs of younger residents and staff who care for them. And you've already mentioned Dr. Rebecca Farini from San Diego, um, uh, amazing, uh, amazing physician, dedicated, passionate to her, uh, to her patients and her staff, a leader, uh, an innovator. Um, and you also have Dr. Leah Watson from Colorado, uh, it, uh, in the piece as well, or Christine does, uh, and um, the effect that she has had in looking at uh, uh, behavioral health and emotional needs—a um, really important, really important paper with really important people, kind of helping us understand um, this population and their needs. Lead us through it. Sure. So um, I think Dr. Farini's main point is that this is a really heterogeneous group, group of residents. Um, and it can include individuals who have dege degenerative neurologic diseases, spinal cord injuries, many of them have serious mental illness. Um, and then others have chronic diseases that really advanced uh, too early. They may have uh, chronic kidney disease or MS um, or um, diabetes and have had amputations. And Dr. Farini, I think her main point, um, that, that her main takeaway point is that these younger uh, residents or patients really need to have at least one person on their side. Um, and she talks about creating a therapeutic milieu um, hmm. where that um, the environment in and of itself is supporting recovery and healing and quality of life. And that will get a little bit into with Travis's article in a minute. Um, but the importance of these long-term relationships with staff um, and consistency. She also brings up um, the importance of assessing uh, for past trauma uh, particularly in this population, because so many of them have experienced this. And we, right. with trauma-informed care, we don't want to, you know, reignite um, some of those um, intense feelings again, if it's possible. The um, other thing she talks about is really uh, trying to meet and separate out needs from wants. So you want to try to meet needs of the patients but also addressing some of their wants or some mm. of their desires. Mm -hmm. Dr. Watson um, 
again, emphasizes, you know, particularly those who have a behavioral health component, having one person who's kind of what she calls the quarterback. Um, and she uses a paradigm called the bold paradigm. So it's talking about being calm, um, having one person who's kind of the, the decision maker and manages all the decisions, um, a setting appropriate limits, and then being dependable, which just means if you're going to say that you're going to come at 11 o'clock to sit down with that person and talk with them, you need to be there at 11 o'clock to talk with them. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, then lastly, we also um, received some uh, feedback from uh, a nurse practitioner, Constance Rose, um, who works with this population a lot. Um, as well as uh, Richard Jamon, who is a psychologist who's the co-chair with Dr. Watson of uh, mm -hmm. AMDA's Behavioral Health Council. That's right. Uh, one of the things I thought was kind of neat um, that Constance Rose brought up was um, working with um, some of the younger population. They didn't want um, large quantities of activities but they wanted things that were kind of more exciting and more engaging so um, things like drum circles or cornhole tournaments or um, things that involve several staff and not so much small groups mm. um, because they still had some um, ability to be able to manage some of their own social time on their on their own so um, some fun some fun ideas and um, Really, uh, just also Dr. Jaman talked about the importance of uh, supporting staff um, because we have to be kind to the staff and understanding when they may be dealing with some uh, challenging psychiatric or behavioral symptoms. And we have to be good to the staff for them to be good um, in terms of their communication with residents. Absolutely, absolutely. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. post-acute care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. post-acute care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Uh, moving on to our uh, next spotlighted article uh, by Travis Neal, uh, The Institutional Placebo Effect, Tapping into the Mind-Body Connection for Better Outcomes. Um, Mr. Neal, really interesting approach to common, uh, complex medical issues uh, in, um, in a unique setting, uh, in a rural setting. Um, tell, us about, um, tell us about the article, but tell us about 
you remind us <laughs> about placebos and their uh, their historical aspect and then how you approached these issues uh, which are, which I'm sure you'll describe um, and and your outcomes fascinating paper sure well thanks Wayne I really appreciate uh, you doing this and and I you know I think that the concept of placebo effect um, on the surface you know for a lot of people they just think of it as a as a bit of a deception and you know in historically speaking we actually had a brief period where placebo effect um, and the idea behind it in medicine was uh, uh, legal albeit not ethical um, as as we began to realize the power of our influence and really our perceptions on the effects that we desired with particular treatments or medications. And as a result of uh, witnessing that power, the, the placebo um, concept became a staple for all, uh, you know, random good randomized controlled trials. And, you know, then of course, uh, ethically, we realized that this is not a way that we can practice medicine. We can't, uh, I actually think the concept of placebo, um, it was used as Olbacap, uh, which is placebo spelled backwards, uh, mm. brief mm. period. And, and, you know, of course we can't deceive people and, and we shouldn't deceive people. And so, you know, the, the idea of placebo um, took a back burner except in form of the randomized controlled trials. Um, but the, the concept itself is really uh, particularly in medicine, is, is a really powerful tool, I think, to demonstrate the power of the mind-body connection, something that I think we talk about often in medicine. Um, and certainly, I think the more that we practice, the longer we practice, we, the more we appreciate the, the concept. But um, I also think it, it's become a little bit on the, the back burner of our uh, thinking. And so my the purpose of my article and really the purpose of my teaching placebo effect is to take that concept that I think a lot of us conceptually know and bring it into the forefront so that we can actually use it as a tool to implement in practice. Hmm. Tell us about the, about the, the, the basis of your work in your facility. So the, the placebo concept um, as I use it in a facility is um, I really use it as a tool, and it's, a, it's an educational tool where I think those of us that are physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners in uh, long-term care, we're in a, a position of leadership, and I think, um, you know, we can use our uh, position to talk to the staff about how important it is that how, oh, and pause to talk to the staff about the importance of our interactions mm -hmm. on the ultimate outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, and really it's, it's our human connection with everyone. And that is, you know, not just with the patients, but also with each other. And as the patients pick up on, you know, our interactions and they listen to really everything we say, and um, it's really important for us to be mindful of those interactions and then the placebo concept can be used where we can bring science 
And that's really how I, I use it in, in nursing is I talk about the science behind the placebo effect and uh, a little bit about its history, giving a couple of examples. But then I can, I can take the concept, which is scientifically based, and then talk about something that I think we all appreciate and understand, which is the power of, of human connection and turn how that can you know, affect the, the outcomes in our residents. Mm-hmm. The, the specific example that, I, I, that resonated with me was the one about pain and how um, somebody wanted pain medicine and the nurse approached it from your training as, well, you know, um, I know we just altered your whatever the medication is dose and many people find a benefit from that or you know are, are helped by that and often find that something else in a you know much less potent is uh is also very helpful um you know how does it work uh, just with regard to that example what's what's the process that goes on yeah so um and pain is a great example it's a great area i think to focus on as it relates to the power of our interactions and how we speak about things and so um the the one of the most difficult pain medications i think to reduce um in our population it would be fentanyl and fentanyl patch and to take people down on that i've always found that to be particularly difficult so that was one area where i i focused on the way that the nursing staff and myself spoke to the residents about uh, reductions and specifically just um, just putting a positive spin on it by simply saying, hey, I, you know, I know that your fentanyl patch has recently been decreased. Um, I know quite a few people that have done really well on lower doses, which is a very true statement, um, both for me and as, as well as most of the nurses that uh, I've worked with. And, and so by simply wording it that way and then still asking how they're doing, how's your pain, and, and using not only the, the positive um, spin, if you will, on, on asking about the, the reduction in the fentanyl patch, but also then really engaging with them in that moment, really being present, really listening to them, um, you know, and reflective listening, whatever they respond back to you, reflect it back. So they're really feeling heard and listened to. And the power of both the positive uh, spin on the reduction, as well as really being present with that resident, in my experience, can make or break often those reductions. Fascinating, fascinating article. I would definitely encourage as you're perusing through the May 2021 issue of Caring, Look at this one. This is a, this is a very interesting approach to many things that we struggle with. Um, Dr. Gaelic, to to wrap up our, our review, our, our our last spotlighted article is goes back to the younger individual uh, in the postcute long term care setting. It's entitled "Meeting the Emotional and Behavioral Needs of Younger Residents in Long Term Care" by Dr. Lisa Lind, and Dr. Lind takes a deeper dive into the into the issues that you've already kind of 
partially addressed with regard to the younger adult in long-term care and uh, his or her needs, including developmental disabilities, trauma, sequelae, uh, debilitating mental illness, uh, substance use, or even, or even stays in a correctional facility. She takes us through a potential eight-step algorithm on addressing the unique needs of this population. Um, lead us through this article. Sure. So um, she discusses some of the common emotional and behavioral challenges that can um, kind of co-occur with this population. And, you know, it can be uh, verbal altercations with staff and other residents or a lack of adherence to facility policies or rules. Um, some people have um, inappropriate uh, social interactions with resident and staff um, and maybe um, sleep wake patterns that aren't consistent with uh, what we typically see in the long-term care setting. So staying up all night and then sleeping all through the day. And she gave some recommendations um, to really help with some of these behavioral concerns. And I think the important point is when there's so little that some of these residents can control, they're gonna find something to control. <laughs> and really, I think what they're trying to communicate is that they, they need to um, have relationships with the staff um, and that they need some control over their own lives and, and making sure that needs are met. And again, um, that some of the wants um, can be addressed as well. So given the complexity, um, in some instances, uh, there's a encouragement of making a early referral to whoever the behavioral health or mental health provider may be um, to address issues that may come up in terms of impulsive behavior or anger management. Um, also, we talked before about screening for trauma. Um, and then being upfront with um, residents and being uh, clear about what the policies are, giving them a copy of them so that they're aware of them. Uh, she also talked about um, really tapping into the strengths of the younger residents. So identifying ways in which um, this individual could be helpful to um, other residents on the, on the uh, unit. Um, Maybe pairing younger and older adults as roommates sometimes can be uh, mutually beneficial. And um, again, offering activities that really target younger adults, having them have access to technology um, can make a huge difference. Hmm. Um, and then um, lastly, in terms of residents, um, providing them with available resources. Um, that may address some of their individual needs, whether that's an MS support group or information about local AA meetings, um, given whatever the, the issue may be. The other thing she does is really talk about how it's so important to support the staff as well. And that if your facility does uh, provide care to a younger population, needing to uh, provide staff education and training on identification and documentation of psychiatric signs and symptoms, how to manage um, behavioral symptoms, particularly de-escalation strategies, and early recognition of triggers um, so that we can avoid getting to uh, some of those more challenging interactions. 
Also, you know, the importance of maintaining boundaries um, and stress management and training for staff. And then um, lastly, um, she also suggests uh, in facilities that have a high prevalence of psychiatric needs, um, hiring some staff who have psychiatric training or background, be it uh, nurses or social workers, um, as some staff are just more comfortable working with uh, residents who have um, a higher level of uh, psychiatric need than others. Hmm. But Dr. Gaelic, at the end of the day, you know, my takeaway from this piece is that um, respect, communication, and being treated like one themselves would want to be treated is really is really the 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 brass ring for for anybody in the post acute and long term care setting. Yeah, I think that cuts across all age groups. We yeah, we all want to be treated that way, um, and and the staff does as well. So, you know, I, I think um, you know for for staff, for residents, for uh, consultants, people coming in and out, we have to remember uh, to to treat one another uh, respectfully mm -hmm. and to you know. Um, understand that people are going through their own unique struggles and trying to be patient and kind. Uh, great reflections of what is happening currently in our communities and a snapshot of the future. Um, Dr. Gaelic, as we wrap up, um, I just wanted to, to emphasize for the readers of Caring for the Ages that current or, or former board members, you know, are, have played a part in the May 2021 issue, um, including folks like Dr. Jeff, uh, Milta Little, Heidi White, Barb Resnick. I think that it's great to see um, their ongoing contributions, especially for us, you know, Joamdas in the trenches, as I like to call us, um, you know, we, we workers on the front lines. I, I think the, the inclusion of our leaders really does help to bring to the discussion and create a, a more cohesive uh, organization for all of us, don't you think? I do. I mean, during these times when we can't be together um, for face-to-face uh, -face conferences, uh, I feel like I get a little piece of advice from, um, you know, all these well-respected individuals and, and, you know, feel like the uh, uh, conference continues, um, yeah. kind of with the uh, podcast as well, getting getting to talk with uh, Travis and with you. Um, it's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, Caring for the Ages continues to review and reflect the wonderful work being done by innovators like Travis Neal, uh, Society for Post-Cute Long-Term Care Medicine Leaders, Members, and Community. Uh, take a look at the May 2021 uh, issue. It's, again, fantastic. Uh, Dr. Gaelic and Mr. Neal, thank you so much for spending your time with Caring on the Go. Thanks so much, Wayne. Thank you, Wayne. References for this podcast can be found at www.caringfortheages.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Caring on the Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. 
If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex, A-P-E-X, dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.